we are here on the last day of 2023, and so tomorrow will be another year. Another year has come, another year has dawned, and it just seems like it just keeps coming. I don't know how many of us probably have said, you know, a few weeks ago, I can't believe Christmas is already here. And now we're, now we're at this point, I cannot believe we're at a new year. It's, it's 2024. And I, I've given some thought about this over the last month. Some things have kind of dawned on me um, regarding this coming year. And, and some of it, um, to, for you, it will sound insignificant because you have far more years uh, behind you than I do. But this year is going to mark 25 years since I graduated high school. That that seemed like a long time for me. I just realized, I came to realization of this a couple of weeks ago. I was sitting in my office, and I don't know, my mind goes different places at different times. I probably should be on medication. Um, But my mind went to the fact that my grandmother was the same age that I was when my sister was born. 43, right? Were you a little bit younger? You don't know, it's been so long ago. <laughs> See, she's got more years behind me. But, uh, you know, 43 years old, I think that uh, my sister was born in 1975. So that would have made her somewhere around my age. So that means that I'm old enough to be a grandfather now. Um, and so you, you just think about how, how fast time is passing. And, you know, we always think there's today... We'll do this today, we push it tomorrow, and we keep pushing to it till tomorrow. And then after the several tomorrows, years have passed before we take care of what we need to take care of. And one of the most significant things that we should think about as it relates to today of what we need to do as we consider how quickly time is passing is we really need to give urgent consideration to you know, spiritual realities, those issues in our life that that are very urgent that relate to God uh, relate to our relationship with him relate to eternity um, you know one, one thing that's been coming to my my mind and my attention a lot is that whatever I have ahead of me I don't want to waste any more of it I don't want to waste my life on trivial things I don't want to waste my life on on silliness I, I want to make my life count for for God I want to make it count in regards to eternity. And I think that should be the heartbeat of all of us. That um, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing to wake up one day and to think about that for the last so many years, you, you've wasted so much of your life when you could be given much of that to Christ and his cause and living for him, being on a mission for him, and, and so many things that we we can think about. And I, I want us to, to, to come to Hebrews... Uh, chapter 4 and verses uh, 11 through 13 with that thought, with that idea of thinking about here we are approaching another year. And I, I think typically at this point of time, everybody is maybe taking stock of the year past and where they want to be in the, the coming year. Maybe personal goals that you have, whatever they may be. Um, I want to just take this for a moment and just think spiritually about where we should be, what we should be doing, what we should be striving for, what we should be working diligently for in the coming year. Uh, really, that we should, should have been working for, that hopefully we maybe give more thought of this this coming year and to the years that began to follow. So let, let's look at God's Word together and let's see what this is. Look with me in Hebrews 4, beginning verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest 
lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So let's, let's just think in verse 11. He says, be diligent to enter that rest. Or maybe we could say it another way, make every effort. Strive with all of your mind, strive with all of your being to enter that rest. And with that comes the idea we want to strive, we want to enter into that rest because we know that not striving leads to the second part of that verse, which is lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So it appears that if we're not striving, if we're not working, if we're not making every effort that we can to enter that rest, we're falling. We're, we're falling into disobedience. So let's think just for a moment what it is that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he speaks about this idea of being diligent to enter that rest. So he's trying to understand what is the rest that he's specifically talking about. So let, let's, just, let's just catch up that where we are in the context of the book of Hebrews. In fact, our, our text actually comes as an important conclusion to a unit of thought. And the key argument of Hebrews is to argue that Jesus is better. And so what is going on with these Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing to is that they are in danger of lapsing back into Judaism. They have come out of Judaism, out of the Old Testament, to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And what the author of Hebrews does is that he uses the Old Testament to show that it points to Jesus Christ. And shows that Jesus is better. In fact, if we go back a little bit earlier in Hebrews, as far as you think about what the Old Testament has to say, the author of Hebrews makes this statement, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, speaking about how he spoke in the context in the Old Testament. And then he says, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, to whom also he has made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his powers when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So he speaks about the Old Testament, the, the value of it, the importance of it, but also showing that now in these last days, speaking about the days of the Lord Jesus, in fact, we could even say that we are in these last days. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. And so as we consider what God has said to us in the Old Testament, through the prophets, through the law, we have a better understanding of it in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, namely because Jesus fulfills all that we see in, in the Old Testament. So the author of Hebrews is saying, don't go back into the Old Testament as good as it was. Jesus is here now, and he is better. You, you don't go back to the prophets. You don't go back to the laws and that alone, because that's inferior. You, you, 
you go to the Old Testament in and through Jesus Christ, knowing that he is the fulfillment of it, that all of it points to him and that Jesus is better. And so he makes arguments that Jesus is better than the angels. He says that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the priest. Jesus is better than the Levitical sacrifices. Jesus is better. So why would you go back to something that is inferior? And so that's the argument that he makes. And so in, in our context, uh, the author of Hebrews, uh, beginning with chapter 3 and verse 2, makes the statement that Jesus is the better Moses. And so with the introduction of Moses, he focuses on this period and makes an impassioned exhortation for his readers not to repeat the mistakes of Israel in the wilderness. And he does this by making his appeal to Psalm 95 in verses 7 through 11, where the psalmist focuses on the rebellion of Israel at Kadesh of Barnea. It was in that place that Israel refused to trust God to bring them into the promised land after they had heard the majority of the spies report and dismissing the possibility of them crossing the Jordan, entering into Canaan, and taking the land. They said, it's a great land, it's a beautiful land, everything that God said about this land was true, but it's too much for us. The, the fortresses for us to, the storm are too high. The warriors, they're too big. We're just grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way that we can do that. God sends 12 spies into the land. Ten of them say, it's a great land, but we can't do it. Two of them say, hey, it's a great land. There is a great enemy that's a great obstacle, but we serve a great God, so let's go and let's take the land. And the people of Israel sided with the majority report. And then they decided that we're going to take some stones and we're going to kill Caleb, Joshua, Aaron, and Moses because they're trying to take us into this land and get us killed. And then that's when God intervened. He caused the earth to open up and to swallow uh, the, and crush the rebellion. And then he sent Israel into the wilderness for them to march for 40 years until every single generation that came out of Egypt, every adult, they came out of Egypt that they died in that desert. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's taking Psalm 95, which is a reflection of that, and he's saying, don't be like them. Don't be disobedient. Don't be rebellious. Do not miss the opportunity to enter into God's rest. And so for the children of Israel, that rest was the promised land. But here we are as New Testament Christians. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all things, and he's leading us to a better land, a better rest. Not, not a land in Canaan, in Israel, a place that I've been, that my feet have been, but he's leading us to his promised land, a heavenly rest. And so God punished the people of Israel by prolonging the wilderness wandering and ensuring that all of that adult generation who had left Israel would die with the exception of Caleb and Joshua and then the author of Hebrews finds in Psalm 95 a message that is still relevant to his own readers. It's not just about what happened thousands of years ago, but it has relevance for his readers and also for us today, especially for those of us who follow the greater Moses, the Lord Jesus. And what he does is he takes this text and he expounds on it and he insistently confronts him with the words of Psalm 95, citing them again and again, beginning with chapter 3 all the way to where we are in chapter 4. 
And he finds particular relevance in two words that's, that's used repeatedly throughout this section, rest and today. Israel's disobedience cost them rest in the promised land. But in the new covenant, there is a greater cost of heavenly rest for disobedience and sin leading to unbelief. The stakes are higher. So the second word the author focuses on today, which has an even more urgent meaning than it did in Psalm 95. Now notice the connection of today with the recurring warning, do not harden your hearts of unbelief. So look, look with me in several places. Uh, back in chapter 3, look in verses 7 through 8. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion the day of, of trial in the wilderness. And then in verses 12 through 13, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Look in verse 15, While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then in chapter 4 and verse 7, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so the emphasis in this warning that he's given is today. Listen to me today. Do not harden your hearts today. Obey my voice today. And there's nothing like the coming of a new year to remind us that today does not last forever. And so the emphasis of the author is that there is no guarantee for tomorrow. There is only today. And that's why he continually says, Today, do not harden your voice. Today, listen to me. Because he only knows of today. He doesn't know if there's going to be a tomorrow. And there's at least three reasons why hearing God's word, or hearing God in his word today, and faithfully following it, is important. For obvious, the obvious reason is we may not be here tomorrow. We do not know if, if God is going to grant us breath tomorrow. We do not know if, if the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come tomorrow. So that's why today is important. Number two, if we do have tomorrow, we've only wasted another day if we don't heed his voice. Another day of hardening our heart. Another day of rebellion. Another day of working against God. Another day of living in our sins. It's another day of travesty of, of living. And then I think the third reason of why it's important when he uses the word today is because we've, we have hardened our hearts even more than the day before if we wait till tomorrow to listen to him. That's, that's the tendency of our hearts. Our, our hearts are wayward. And so the, the, the longer we go without listening to God and His Word and responding to His Word and taking care of sin and disobedience mean the more, the more ingrained that that disobedience and sin comes in our heart to where we become comfortable with it and it becomes a normal part of our life. You may have actually had this experience in, in your own life at some time. You, you do something, there's a sin that you do, and you immediately feel guilty and you feel convicted and you repent of that sin. But the more that you continue in that sin the easier it is to continue doing it without feeling guilt and feeling conviction. And before long, it just passes off from your mind. And so that's why it's important that the author is giving this warning to these believers today. Obviously, there may not be a tomorrow. 
If you wait for tomorrow, that's another day to continue in hardening your heart. And then if you wait till tomorrow, this means that that hardening, it gets, it gets harder and harder. And you become more ingrained and more insensitive to God and his word. And that's why it's important to listen to him today. So the question I want us to, to explore and to think about in this text is how do we make the most of today to enter into God's rest through the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we make the most of today and not have a hardened, unbelieving heart? Now, even if you do not have a hardened, unbelieving heart, how do we make the most of today to prevent the inclination of a hardened and unbelieving heart? Like we sang the song, Come Thou Fount, this morning, one of the verses in that song that really, I think about this verse a lot, probably more than, than any verse of any song that I, I have uh, I, I heard, I think about this verse more as it relates to my own life, where the writer of that song says, we are prone to wonder and prone to leave the God we love. And, and the reason I think about that is because I think that is, is really uh, gives a good idea of my own heart, that I'm prone to wonder and prone to leave the God I love. And I believe that's the, the tendency of all of our hearts. That there is still within us, even those of us who have been saved by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, our sin has been cleansed, the Holy Spirit of God resides within us. There is still this warring that we do in our flesh. And there is this fight to the day that we die to not to wonder and to leave the God we love. And that's really the essence of what the writer of Hebrews is, is saying here in this text. I mean, if you look at verse 11, you know, it says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest. Why? Lest anyone fall, according to the same example of disobedience. It's one of the reasons Paul himself, he talks about how he beats his body, how I discipline my body, lest I disqualify myself. So it was something that even, even Paul Considered. So, you know, how do we make the most of today to guard our hearts against leaving and wandering away from God in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And so let's, let's consider what we find in our text, especially beginning verse 11. And this may sound strange to you, but the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about rest. Let's enter into that rest, that promised rest that God gives us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. I think he's speaking about a, a heavenly rest. We're, we're all on this journey as Christians, journeying to that, uh, to that celestial city, as the, the Pilgrim's Progress puts it, that heavenly city, that heavenly rest that we are going. So what, what do we need to do? Well, according to verse 11, it seems that we need to work at resting. Work at resting. The lesson of of Psalm 95 is concluded with a direct and urgent appeal not to repeat the disastrous disobedience of Israel in the wilderness. And as New Testament Christian, failure is more catastrophic than Israel. Israel failed to achieve rest in the promised land. In the context of Hebrews suggested danger of falling to enter into heavenly rest. So with this in mind, the author gives a very fitting word. In, in my text, it's translated, be diligent. If you'll notice, he says, let us therefore be diligent. Maybe yours says strive, let us strive. Or I like this one in some translation, let us make every effort. 
to enter that rest. And this, this word speaks of focused attention toward the accomplishment of a given task. Salvation by grace through faith is demonstrated not by inactivity, but by fervent application of the gospel. In essence, we work at resting with all of our effort. There is an added emphasis in this exhortation in the way that the author includes himself. He's not just singling out those to whom he is writing. He sees this as necessary for himself as well. This means that making every effort to enter into God's rest is not just for the wayward Christian. It is for every Christian, no matter where they are on their journey to enter God's rest. Now, when I make this statement about working for heavenly rest, it seems to be contradictory. We, we, we work at resting. I thought that resting was the cessation of working, and now you're saying if you want rest, you need to work. And that even raises other suspicions, because whenever we hear the word work in the context of church, like, oh, no, no, that's not a good thing. We're, we're, not, we're not about work. We're all about grace. So... What do we mean by that? Well, one thing, because we want to we wanna guard against work salvation. And so, but this is not what the author of Hebrews has in mind. And maybe I think Paul can help us out in how he expresses this. In Philippians 2, write this down if you have a, a, a piece of paper in your margin. This is really a good verse for you to, to think about and meditate. But notice what he says. Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. He says, work out your own salvation with fear trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he goes on and explains it a little bit more. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his purpose. I think one of the key, th- key phrases in this text is the idea of work out. Because God's doing a work in you by grace through faith. He has saved you. He's done a work in you. And now as one who is in grace, in Christ, you are to work out what God's worked in you, if that even makes sense to you. So he makes it very clear as Christians that we do not live the Christian life with a sense of inactivity and lethargy and just kind of a laissez-faire attitude that as Christians we are diligent and we're striving and we're making every effort to live to the fullest of our ability with the help of God by His Spirit to enter into that rest. Consider also what he says in Ephesians 2, uh, 2 and verse 10. In Ephesians 2 and verse 8, it says, For by grace we have been saved. Not of, not of ourselves, lest anyone can boast. And then he says in Ephesians 2, For we are God's workmanship created for good works. So within, with this in mind, we might uh, summarize that the very evidence that you are entering God's rest in and through Jesus is that you are making every effort to enter into that rest. Or maybe to say it another way, we do not work for salvation, but from salvation. We do not work for righteousness. We cannot work for righteousness, but we work from righteousness. It is God, through his son Jesus Christ, that declares us righteous, and now that we are righteous, we work from that reality. So I think that's the the idea that we have in mind here of what the writer of Hebrews is getting at, about making every effort to enter into that rest. That rest is yours in and through Christ alone, but strive with every effort 
to enter into that rest. So now let's just think specifically what we need to do to make every effort to enter God's rest, especially as understood in Hebrews. Pay pay close, uh, look at uh, a few verses with me. Back in chapter 2 in verse 1, he says, um, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So one of the ways that we make every effort is that we, we listen. We specifically pay a close attention to what we've heard. And then in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we make every effort by, Don't neglect your great salvation. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. We make every effort by considering Christ Jesus. Chapter 3 and verse 8, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 3 and verse 12, take care against an unbelieving heart. Chapter 3 and verse 14, exhort one another against the deceitfulness of sin. And then in chapter 4 and verse 1, fear the unbelief that will keep you from the promised land. So these are ways in which the author of Hebrews tells us that we make every effort, that we're diligent to enter into God's wrath as we do these things. And I think all of this can be summed up this way. Make every effort to avoid disobedience of unbelief. Make every effort to avoid disobedience of unbelief. And I think this is the way that we should think about our Christian life altogether. All the disciplines of of the Christian life. Make every effort, strive with great, as much as you can, to be here every Lord's Day. Make every effort, strive with all of your might to pray to God. Make every effort, strive with all that you can to witness to people and your families. Make every effort and strive with all that you can to keep your marriage. Make every effort you can to strive to raise your children and the fear of the Lord. And so these are the, these are the ways, maybe some practical ways, some specific ways in which we are striving and we are working diligently to enter into God's rest. And as we move on to the verses, I think he gives us some more, be more specific about it as we consider about being diligent, to, being diligent to enter into God's rest, that he connects it in verses 12 through 13 with the word of God and how... The Word of God plays a significant and crucial role in us entering into that rest and, and striving and being diligent in that regard. And so it, it concludes with a reflection on the power of God's Word and its relationship to entering into His rest. And the Word has been the focus of the problems that plague these people who have a hardened heart of disobedience and unbelief. They're not listening to God's Word. They're not heeding God's Word. They're disobeying God's word. So it's, it's, it's the problem. That's what plagues them. That's what they're doing with God's word or what they're not doing with it. But it's also the solution for the Christian's effort to enter God's rest. Now all over the book of Hebrews, and especially beginning with chapter 3 and verse 1, and I already mentioned to you that the author of Hebrews expounds on Psalm 95, which reflects on Israel's disobedience in the wilderness. And this psalm, focused on God speaking both in the word that the people are exhorted to obey 
and the declaration in the oath that sealed their fate because of their refusal to listen. But also notice how often, I'm just going to go through this really quickly, how often the word of God is referred to in this section. section. Chapter 3 and verse 1, it's called our confession. Chapter 3 and verse 7 and and verse 15, and also in chapter 4 and verse 7, it said, hear his voice. Chapter 3 and verse 16, having heard. Chapter 4 and verse 2, the gospel was preached. Again, chapter 4 and verse 2, the word they heard. Chapter 4 and verse 3, as he has said. Chapter 4 and verse 4, spoken. And chapter 4 and verse 6, first preached. And moreover, the emphasis of the word of God is also based on the usage of Psalm 95, which the author of Hebrews considered to be inspired word of God that was profitable to these Christians. And Israel's failure to enter into the promised land and our failure to enter into heavenly rest is connected to whether we make every effort to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus and his word. And then when we move on and when we consider the description here that's given in chapter 12 and verse 13, to be honest with you, I could probably take each of these words and do a sermon series on them. But I want to just give you a big picture of it. I want you to lose the, uh, the force with the trees of, of what he's actually trying to say here. And he gives these incredible descriptions concerning the word of God beginning in verse, tw- in verse 12. He says it's living and it's powerful. Or maybe the word powerful can be translated as effective and active. And this stands at the head of the sentence, perhaps for emphasis. And living means that it's life-giving. It's also dynamic in that it is never out of date or irrelevant. Can you imagine what we're doing at this moment at this time? Here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still reading from the same book that the early church did. And it's still just as relevant to us as it was to them 2,000 years ago. The word of God is is steadfast in what it says, and it never changes. It never loses its power. It never loses its focus. You take any book that you read, you take a textbook, maybe it's an English book, or, or a science textbook, or geology, and about 10 years from now, it's going to be out of date. You know, I actually have books in my library that are actually based on the Bible, and even they go out of date. Uh, because there's, there's research that's, that's advanced, so to speak. I mean, what, what's found here is true, but what they uncover, you know, they're, they're, they're mining the Bible, and they're finding something they never considered. I have uh, one commentary on the book of Romans uh, that was uh, published in ni- 1998. It was a textbook that I used in seminary, and then the author did a second edition of it, and basically it's a different commentary because he changed some of his views about his interpretation. So the the books are changing, but the Word of God always stays the same. It doesn't need to be updated because it's living and it's active and it takes on the very character of God because God is a living God. So His Word is the living God as well. It's also powerful in that it accomplishes its purpose and it never returns void. God's Word, when it goes forth, when you hear it, it's going to have an effect on you some way or some, somehow. Uh, the, the problem here, though, some of you may be thinking it's not really having much of an effect on me right now. Well, it is, but what it's doing is it's hardening you because you're not listening and you're not obeying and you're not faithfully embracing it. So the Word of God is either going to have an effect on you 
positively or negatively. It's going to either have a, it's either going to come with a response of you rejecting it and in disobedience, it's going to have a response in you embracing all that the word of God says. It's always effective, and that's the, that's the emphasis of the prophetic word, that it will not return void. It's always going to accomplish what it sets out to accomplish. Now, when we, when we take that verse, which is never going to return void, that means that we're supposed to see great things happening. Everybody's going to be saved. We're going to have more people in church. But it also has a different effect. It has the effect of judgment along with salvation. And so God's word is always effective when it goes out. We also see in this text that not only is it you know, powerful and effective, but notice that it's, uh, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That it penetrates us deeply. It penetrates us deeply. It, it goes to the core of who we are, to our very spirit, to the very essence of who we are. It's not something that just affects us on the surface. It's something that affects us deeply with, within us. That's the nature of the word of God, that it can slice us ever so thin and ever so, um, ever so intimately within the deep recesses of our, of our heart. And then that goes along with what we see in verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eye of him to whom he must give an account. That follows after the, the idea that it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Maybe you've had this experience before, that when you come to the word of God, you read it, maybe you hear it preached, and there's something in your life that you've never given thought to, and then all of a sudden, God's word just opened it up to you. Maybe it's something that you needed to fix. Maybe it's something that you, you, you've missed in your life or something that, that, that you just never considered. And yet God's word can penetrate in such a way that it opens you up for all to see. And then it takes on the characteristic of God in verse 13, and there's no creature hidden from his sight. So when we come to God's word, we, we can't hide who we are. It affects us in that way, and it judges us in that way as well. So there's this major focus here as it relates to the Word of God. So that one thing that must be noted, that God's Word in making every effort to enter in His, race is to, to, His rest is to make every effort to enter God's rest through His Word means to do so in the fellowship of His church. There is a strong emphasis on fellowship of other believers throughout the book of Hebrews, especially in this, in this section. The antidote to a heart of unbelief is hearing and obeying God's word together. So the way that we can maximize the effect of God's word on our hearts, in our lives, is as we gather together to listen and to hear and to read God's word together. Now, it is extremely crucial in your spiritual life that you have a devotion life, that you're reading God's word, that you're in God's word. But we do not read God's word as solitary beings. We read God's word as beings in relationship. In relationship with one another. To be a being in relationship is, is a core of what makes us a person. We're not just solitary individual beings. We have been created with an appetite for relationship. Relationship with God and also relationship with others. And so it's of, it's of, of, of utmost importance that we give due consideration that the way that we can get the most out of God's word 
is if we are here, if we're listening to God's word, if we're allowing other people to speak God's word into us. Notice one way the author shows how we avoid a hardened heart of unbelief in Hebrews 3 and verses 12 through 13. Notice what he said. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily. Notice that. Exhort who? One another daily. And what do you think we exhort one another with? We exhort one another with God's word. Also, look again at verse 11. It says, be diligent to enter that rest. Is this something that we do by ourselves? The author of Hebrews actually says, let us. Let us. That's the plural, isn't it? He includes himself in that. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. And so as I've emphasized the word of God in this section, it is understood that people would be encountering God and his word together. That's the mindset of the author of Hebrews. That's the mindset of those people who were hearing this, this uh, in of themselves. The, 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 the individualism that we have in the context of the American church does not come from the Bible. It comes from our culture. I'm my own person. I do what I want to do. I'm an autonomous being. I can make my own decisions, do this, do that. And the reality of that, that's just, a, that's, that's, that's just not true. So the Bible is all about, uh, Bible and Christianity is all about us together in a community, specifically in the context of, uh, of a church. So it, the emphasis here is that we would be encountering God's word together. Now think about the various ways in which this is expressed. I've given you some ways. They heard, it was spoken, it was preached. Where do you think this happened at? It happened together in a church. That's where they were hearing the word together. The other thing, the other clue here is just thinking with historical context in mind. People encountered the word of God almost solitarily when they gathered as a church. They did not have Bibles to take home. They were scrolls. And to write these scrolls was incredibly expensive. And only wealthy people possessed them. And most likely, only the the church gathering had one of these scrolls, and they would open it up on that Lord's Day service, and that would be the first time that the people would have encountered God's Word. And this was true of the church for almost 1,500 years until the printing press gave birth. And then it was after the printing press in the 1500s that Bibles began to be proliferated throughout Europe and all over the world. And now here we are 500 years from that, and then every home has a Bible, and we can just pull up a, a Bible on our app. But, but in the early church, the Bible was read together. And so your, your personal and private reading of the Bible is vital and crucial, but it cannot and must not be a substitute for being confronted with God's word in the church together and with other believers. God's word is most living, effective, and sharper than a two-edged sword when it is read, preached, and heard as we gather together as a church. And so that's one of the ways in which we, we strive, we make every effort, and we're diligent to enter God's rest. And not only that we encounter God in his word, but we encounter God in his word together as his people. And that's the way God has designed it. And that's the only way that we're going to flourish 
as Christians, and that's the only way that we're going to be able to enter into his rest, is if we make every effort in the context of God's word together. So, today, if you will hear God's word, make every effort to enter that heavenly rest in and through the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.